and the reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 9 and I will be reading from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. If you're looking in the church Bibles then we are on page 1207. That's page 1207. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died and a ransom. He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the Lord to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. 
So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. We do. Uh, let's start by thinking about how we got to this sermon this morning. If you've ever been asked to dig into part of the Bible so that you can explain it to someone, then we just need the volume down a little bit. Do you want, uh, Brian? Yeah. Ringing a bit? Better? Okay. Uh, if you've ever been asked to dig into part of the Bible so you can explain it to someone else, it's usually a good idea to start at the beginning and to work your way through the passage. But for this part of the Bible, I think it will find it more helpful to start before the beginning and at the middle. And if that sounds sort of inside out and back to front, well... What do you expect from me? Um, so, before the beginning, if you've heard any of the previous uh, talks in this series from the book of Hebrews, then you'll know that the writer of this Bible book is trying to help some Jewish background Christians. These were people who'd been brought up as Jews, following all the practices of the Jewish religion, not doing certain things on certain days, <coughs> going to the temple, offering certain sacrifices of animals and birds according to rules set by Moses and God a thousand years or more earlier. Like every Jew, uh, they knew that God had promised to send a Messiah, uh, some person from heaven, uh, to put everything right. Uh, and now, by his spirit, God had shown them that Jesus Christ was this man. He was this person sent from heaven. And at first, this revelation had been really, really exciting. After millennia of waiting, God was on the move and was sorting out every problem. That's great. But by the time this Bible book of Hebrews was written, day-to-day uh, -day reality was beginning to bite. The Roman authorities were persecuting Christians, putting many to death, sometimes in the most awful ways. In their own communities, they become ostracized, ridiculed, and mistreated by their families and friends for abandoning the Jewish traditions. Maybe they thought, it's time to be a proper Jew again and forget this Jesus the Messiah stuff. So the author of this letter is on a mission to show that Jesus the Messiah is so much better than anything that the old style Jewish practices and traditions can offer. It's the only sensible option is to follow Jesus Christ and to stick close to him. It was the only sensible option for them, and the reason we're looking at this passage is it's the only sensible option for us to keep close to Jesus Christ. Living that way won't always be easy and may sometimes seem absolutely bonkers, but it's incomparably better than living without Jesus Christ. 
That's the message of the book of Hebrews. And it's the message this morning to you and to me. I think perhaps we have the next slide up. I can't remember what's on it now. Yeah, okay. So, dear Hebrews. So by the time we get to chapter 9 of the Bible book of Hebrews, our author has already argued passionately that Jesus is the culmination of God's message to every human being. Jesus is much better than angels. Jesus is way better than Moses, one of the greatest figures in Jewish history. Uh, He's argued that the Judaistic practices that they were accustomed to were, in reality, only ever intended by God to lead the Jews to true spiritual living. Following those practices without a heart renewed by God would be fatal. He's already explained that Jesus understands us completely as we are and where we are. Why would you want to turn away from him? He's already shown that Jesus is way better than the best high priest in any Jewish testimony, either then or back in history. And he's already shown that Jesus has put in place a much better promised relationship, a covenant, than the one on which the Jews had been relying. And last week, John took us through the author's (coughs) argument as to how limiting the Jewish worship was. Once a year, the Jewish high priest had to enter the inner sanctuary of the temple in order to worship God and ask him to forgive the Jews for all their wrongs. And in order to get as close as a human could get to God, there were regulations about dress and cleanliness, there were strict timetables and practices to be followed, various paraphernalia that had to be arranged. And even with all that rigmarole, this worship achieved precisely naught. Look back at verse 9. Though hugely significant in Jewish culture and practice, he was only a pointer. He could only ever be a pointer to the true worship that Jesus Christ had now brought into being. And that's where we pick up the author's arguments today. Well, that's before the beginning, so to speak, but I also said to start in the middle. So, skate your eyes down, if you will, to verse 22, in the end of verse 22, where we read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The world is broken. It doesn't work as it's supposed to. There's pain, illness, hunger, suffering. Two of the people who regularly came to this church have died just recently. There's death. There are dreadful disasters affecting everyone equally, whether they are those we might consider wicked or tiny babies who hardly had a chance to do anything right or wrong. There is so often hatred and mistreatment amongst families and so-called friends where there should be love and compassion. And it's not just out there, it's in here. You and I are broken. We can't even keep our own lives and thoughts under control. And none of us treats God with the holiness, the purity and the love that he requires. God didn't make the world like that. He made it perfect in every way. And to put it right, to fix the world in the way that God made it, 
God demands that those guilty for trashing his world must pay the clean-up price. It is you and I and billions of other humans that have corrupted this world. Indirectly, it's you and me who share in the responsibility for tragedies by floods in Libya and earthquakes in Morocco. You and I share in the responsibilities for crimes in Stapleford, for the lack of respect and love we have for one another, for the problems even inside this church. And we are due to pay for this guilt by our own deaths. The wrongs to which we've contributed, directly or indirectly, can't be forgiven except by our death. Now, I don't know about you, but knowing that my faults can be atoned for by my own death isn't very comforting. I wouldn't be here to enjoy the fact that my sins have been sorted out. Instead, says the Bible, I'd be in a place of torment, of weeping, and of hopelessness forever. So the writer has been piling up these reasons why following Christ wholeheartedly is better than the old Jewish system. And now, here are the next ways why following Christ wholeheartedly is better. Better for the first people who read this Bible book and better far than any alternative you or I may be playing with. Let's return to the start of today's passage and see what it's got to say. Let's go to verse 11. Uh, I think this does... Yeah. All right, so let's remember what I've been telling you. So I'll perhaps go again. <coughs> yeah, Jesus in greater than a whole lot of stuff. And following Jesus is better than the old worship system. So that's what he said before. And we go to the next slide. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so verse 11, it starts with one of the Bible's big buts. Last week, John told us about the old Jewish system. But... Now things are very different. The sacrificial worship that Jesus offers God is way better than what went before. And that's really verses 11 down to verse 14. The writer makes four contrasts between the worship that Jesus gives to God with the worship that was offered by the high priest in the Jewish temple when that priest asked for forgiveness once each year. Four reasons why Jesus is so much better than what went before. And the first of these is in the verses 11 and 12. The Jewish high priest had to operate in a temple or a tabernacle made by other sinful humans like him. The building was imperfect. It was tainted by sin. But Jesus operates in the purity of heaven, in the place made by God and at the right hand of God. It's the perfect place for Christ to talk to God. There are no barriers at all between Jesus and God the Father. The second reason he gives in verse 12, the Jewish high priest had to sacrifice goats and calves before he could enter the place that symbolised God's presence on earth. He had to sprinkle their blood to gain a hope of forgiveness for the Jews. But Jesus gave himself as the perfect sacrifice. He's paid the most expensive price for a path that allows him to go straight into God's presence. 
and the forgiveness he obtains for all his followers is complete because the sacrifice is perfect in every way. Jesus' sacrifice is completely perfect. It covers any wrong completely, incontestably. And thirdly, the Jewish high priest went to the special place once a year and had to repeat the whole malarkey the next. But because Jesus Christ's sacrifice is perfect in every way, his entry, in heaven, in, his entry into heaven happens once. Perfect and complete. And needs no repetition. You can't do any better. And fourthly, the Jewish sacrifice, you see this in verse 13 and 14, the Jewish sacrifice system was external. It didn't touch the real person inside and it didn't affect anyone who didn't get splattered with drops of blood. But Jesus' ministry worked internally and cleans up the conscience of those for whom Christ died. His sacrificial worship reaches the very centre of the being of everyone who's in Christ and makes us able to be the people that God always intended us to be. The people that God originally created us to be. Women and men able to serve God in a way that pleases him. Men and women able to enjoy God forever. Jesus works inside and then that comes out. <clears throat> and if we go to the next slide, now from verses 15 down to 22, God's better covenant is described, well, the writer says that God's better covenant is put in place in a way better manner than the old covenant was put in place. He reminds us that the promised relationship, the covenant that Jesus puts in place between humans and God is far better than the one under which the Jews operated. Uh, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, Aaron told us all about this when he preached from chapter 8 of this book under the title, The New Covenant. Uh, if you've forgotten his talk or you never heard it, <coughs> you can listen on Spotify uh, and view it on YouTube. End of advert, sorry. <coughs> but here, the writer isn't pointing out the vast improvements uh, that the new covenant has over the old covenant, uh, this new covenant that God makes for us. Instead, from verse 15, the emphasis is that the much better blessings that God is promising are rooted in, guaranteed by, the Lord Jesus Christ in his very person. Uh, if you look in verse 5, you'll see the word mediator. <coughs> Jesus Christ mediated this covenant. He brought this, uh, this covenant, this new covenant, into place. The promise that Christ's followers will share his eternal inheritance has been paid for by Christ's death in their place. Someone's got to pay for every sin, as I've said already. Normally, it will be the person who's done wrong, said wrong or thought wrong, and the person who hasn't done good, said good or thought good when they should have. Normally, each of us must pay for our own sins with our own death and punishment. But Jesus has died as a ransom for his followers. His death 
has paid the price of their wrongs and each one is set free. Put it this way, the ink of the signature on God's promise to every believer is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Note that Christ's followers are described in verse 15 as those who are called. Now I know that many of you have sensed and experienced God's call and by his grace and mercy you've responded. You can rejoice in being able to say that this new promised relationship, this new covenant between humans and God is personally yours. But I'm also pretty sure that there will be someone listening maybe here this morning or online, who remains outside of that covenant. Someone who, as things stand at present, will have to pay the price of their wrongs, large or small, with their own death, and will have to bear their own punishment. For you, now is the time to hear God calling you. And from verse 16 down to 22, the writer emphasises the importance of Christ's death for God's covenant to work. <clears throat> it's rather like this. When she was alive, Aunt Matilda may have promised cousin Rodney that he would inherit the Picasso that hung on the back of her toilet door. She may have sent him a photo of the painting via WhatsApp. But cousin Rodney won't get hold of the genuine painting until Aunt Matilda is dead and her written will has been proclaimed. Rodney will only benefit when Aunt Matilda has died. And that's the argument that this writer gives uh, in these verses here about a will never taking uh, effect while the person is living. Christ had to die. So if you go down to verse 23, you'll see that the old covenant, the old promise relationship that God made with the Israelites more than a thousand years earlier couldn't actually deliver on its promise until the real sacrifice had been made. A valid death was needed. The old covenant worship that we can read about in the first part of the Bible contains some dramatic symbols of Christ's ultimate sacrifice. Calves were killed, you can see that here in that, this passage in verse 19. Goats, bulls and heifers were killed. See, that's verse 13 of this passage. They were sacrificed as poor stand-ins. They were Eiffel, cardboard Eiffel Towers. But those symbols had only been able to give a promise of forgiveness not forgiveness itself. Rather like Aunt Matilda's promise, that old worship only provided WhatsApp-style pictures of the forgiveness that God promised his people. The actual forgiveness couldn't be theirs until Christ had paid with his own sacrifice completely and perfectly. Only then would their salvation from sin, death and judgment be sure. Now, if you're trusting Christ for rescue from the consequences of your sin, <coughs> then you can only have hope if he's died in your place. All those picture sacrifices achieve nothing for the Jews. They may have looked impressive, 
they, the stink of all that blood when you went to the temple must have been gut-wrenching. And it cost the Jews a lot to buy the sacrificial animals. But it was all pointless and all worthless unless those sacrifices pointed to Christ. And everything that you... Who need this one, I think? Can't see what I'm doing. And everything that you or I can do, say or think, even if it takes everything we have, every bit of energy, every pound in our bank account, every belonging that we owe, all the hours of every day, offering all that to God will be worthless unless they point to Christ. Unless that energy, that money, those belongings and that time honour him. Unless we are relying 100% on Christ and his perfect, complete sacrifice. If we have any reliance on those things, we're lost. You know, sadly, many of the Jews, even up to the time when this Bible book was written, were relying on the old sacrificial system. The rules, the regulations, the rigmarole. Did you notice three alliterations there? Three R's. <coughs> the rules, regulations and rigmarole that went with it. They were relying on that. They'd lost sight of the purpose of that worship system. They weren't relying on the mercy and the love of God that would be fully revealed in the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And equally sadly, sadly, there are far too many very dedicated and sincere people, some of them even in Christian churches, who are relying on their religious systems or religious activity or on their lives dedicated to helping others. These things may all be very good, but only if they arise because we are relying on the mercy and love of God revealed in the birth, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so if we can go to the next slide, we arrive at the summit point of this Bible book of Hebrews. Jesus' sacrifice is way better. Verses 23 to 28. From here down to verse 18 of the next chapter, I'm not going to go all that way today, <coughs> the topic is the awesome nature of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And, it, and it, that really leads into the rest of this book, which can be summarised like this. Um, <coughs> because, he's, because Christ's death is so significant, so wonderful, even though awful, it ought to make a huge difference to the way that we live. Well, that's to look at some sermons yet to come. But here we are today, just in these uh, last few verses of this chapter. It's a turning point in this book. So be sure to pay attention, to grab hold of something of the awesome wonder of Christ's death. Pick, verse 23 picks up on what's gone before. The pictures of heaven that John gave us last week, the altar, the incense, the ark of the old covenant, and so on. 
had to be purified by animal sacrifices and all that went with them. Only then could there be a meeting place in the Holy of Holies between God and one particular high priest once a year. Now that old system of sacrifices, that meeting place, were very limited. Just one man, just once a year. And the whole picture was only the whole thing was only a picture anyhow of Jesus' sacrifice. It was only a poor picture of what Christ had to go through on the cross. Compare that, says verse 23, with Jesus Christ's sacrifice. He wasn't purifying an earthly temple for a short time. He's purifying an entry into heaven so that God and humans can meet eternally. Now at first glance, it may seem as though this verse says that heaven needs purifying. Don't know whether that's how you read it. When I first looked at it, that's a bit odd. Sounds like heaven needs purifying. <clears throat> Is heaven in need of a clean-up? Of course not. No, it's the heavenly things that need cleaning. Just like the, heaven, the, the things in the Old Testament uh, temples and tabernacles need cleaning, symbolically, the heavenly things need cleaning. So what are the heavenly things that need this cleaning? What will be involved in the daily offerings in heaven uh, to God? What things will replace the daily sacrifices of the old ten temple in heaven? What heavenly things will offer pleasing prayers to replace the incense in the Old Testament, the old temple, the old tabernacle? What heavenly things, what things will shine brightly in heaven uh, to replacing the seven branch candlestick that was in the old temple, the old tabernacle? Well, the answer simply is you and me. Everyone for whom Christ died. His church. The new temple is Christ's people paid for by his blood, by his sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice has made every Christian ready to be a perfect worshipper in heaven, ready to meet God face to face without any barriers, completely clean. And that means that Christ is a far, far better sacrifice than any of those old-style temple uh, worship things. Christ is making us perfect, ready to be a worshipper of God in heaven, in perfection forever. Christ is going to live in us, his temple. And if you have any doubt about this, then verse 24 tells us that Christ has gone before us and is already in God's presence as our representative. I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. Christ's sacrifice was and is the real deal. The way into heaven, into perfection, into purity, is open because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's paved the way on our behalf, having purified us by his death. His death in our place. Well, this is hallelujah stuff, folks. Well, I think it is. Uh, but our scribe hasn't finished yet. I imagine him or her at their writing desk with the quill nib almost burning a hole in the parchment because they're so excited and driven by the Holy Spirit to get these great truths down. With the ink of one great truth still wet on the parchment, here's another and another. Oh, I must get them down before a more marvellous truth swamps out the previous one in my mind. So in the remaining few verses, 
we're pointed to a series of five marbles. They're almost falling over one another. Firstly, the human high priest had to keep going back, sacrificing again and again, entering the Holy of, Holy every year, Holy of Holies every year, verse 25. But Jesus Christ's sacrifice was perfect in every way. His sacrifice made once is so good and so total and complete, it never needs repeating. Christ has done it all. His death can't be repeated, and its completeness means it needs no repeat. Do your sins seem small? Only by his death can they be forgiven, and you allowed into heaven. Do your sins seem huge? His death is sufficient. He's perfectly able to pay. Secondly, the human high priest had to rely on the sacrifice of an animal, an animal that wasn't even their own. No wonder it wasn't very effective. Um, uh, no wonder it wasn't a very effective way of making them holy enough to meet God. Never mind the impossibility of it purifying other people. But see, in verse 26, Christ paid the price for other people's wrongs with the sacrifice of himself. Even though he, alone amongst the whole of humanity, was holy enough to meet God and didn't need a sacrifice for himself. His sacrifice is 100% effective for everyone who's covered by his sacrifice. <clears throat> Thirdly, he's faced the judgment that each Christian ought to face for themselves. You'll see that in verse 27 and 28. He's accepted, he's borne in himself the punishment that God the judge has justly decreed for every sin of every believer. And fourthly, in this way, by his death, Christ has done away with sin. See that in verse 26. Utterly and forever. Hallelujah. This is the culmination of everything that God has been doing since humanity sinned way, way back. And it's the beginning of everything better that's to follow for eternity. And fifthly and finally, verse 28. While Christ's sacrifice provides a huge, awe-inspiring, complete and perfect end to the problems of the universe, while it completely sorts out once and for all the problem of good and evil, it's not the end. No, it's actually the beginning of something great. Maybe even greater than the marvels that I've just attempted to describe. Christ is going to return. He's not going to repeat what he did before. He couldn't. He's already provided the complete, perfect and eternal solution to sin, to death and to judgment. No, when he returns, he's going to bring salvation in all its perfection, all its completeness, all its beauty and for all eternity to everyone who is waiting for that glorious day. Has Christ paid the penalty, the price for your sin? Was his death in your place? Has he carried in himself the judgment of God that you deserve? Are you waiting eagerly for his reappearance and the experience of his salvation in all its wonder and glory? Well, may, may it be so for everyone here or watching or listening online. May there be no one who, when they meet the returning Saviour, 
does so with the realisation that today was the missed opportunity for them to trust Jesus Christ.